Hey, everybody. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. When we got together for our interview, Elizabeth Lewis Corley said, let's just have a conversation. And wow, did we ever. We began with Elizabeth reading one of her poems, and from there we went on to discuss survival strategies for artists, diversifying our artistic practice, her company's street signs, and their intentional approach to developing profound new work. And then we went on to discuss the meaning of life and art and work and everything. I found this conversation to be very beautiful and touching, filled with Elizabeth's beautiful poetry, beautiful voice, and stirring questions about the human experience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Elizabeth Lewis Corley was founding artistic director of the Atlanta Shakespeare Company. In New York, she worked as an actor and producer for a signature theater company in its first four seasons and produced and performed in plays by Jim Grimsley for Harlan's Creek Productions. Corley's poems have appeared in Southern Poetry Review, Hyperion, Carolina Quarterly, Feminist Studies, Big City Lit, and many additional publications. She and her partner, Joseph Meagle, lead Street Science Center for Literature and Performance, an award-winning professional performing arts and educational center. Founded in Chicago in 1992, Street Science has presented more than 50 productions in its more than 25-year history. Corley holds an MFA in poetry from the Warren Wilson Program for Writers and a BA with highest honors in poetry from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is a member of the Dramatist Guild, Actors' Equity Association, and SAG-AFTRA, and was an Ella Fountain Pratt Emerging Artist in Drama and a 2017-2018 North Carolina Arts Council Fellow in Poetry. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Tamara. Thank you so much for being here. I'm wondering if you could start our conversation with reading some of your poetry. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> well, there's nothing I like better, but that's... um. As I said to you, the hardest part about that is choosing. But so I decided to read to you um, the most recent. The Ones Who. About the tops of trees, the whispering, the branching like the root structures we can't see until they topple, the balancing act they perform over decades. What is revealed? What is hidden? What is hidden in our DNA that draws us to the fire? What we burn? Bodies, branches, trees, treasures. What we release? Memories, attachments, carbon. Who are we? Gasoline on the bonfire, mere accelerant. We know the cost. Coal, oil, all of it. Wit falters. What if we are, in planetary scale, I mean, the species that lets the carbon out? We open our eyes, light coming in in time to see the disappearing wolf, hindquarters, 
and tail. Thank you so much. Beautiful poem and a beautiful voice. So why did you choose that poem? You mentioned it was hard to choose, but why did you pick that one to share? Well, partially because it's recent and partially because it's urgent. Um, I I have this sort of fascination with our self-destructiveness, I suppose, mine personally, and, and the way the world works, the way we war, and the way we destroy the planet we're living on, which just seems so inconceivable, mm. and yet um, we do. So what do we ask poetry to do? We ask poetry to help us pay attention in a different way. Um, so I guess that's what I'm saying. Is Can we pay attention mm. in a different way, mm-hmm. in a more effective way, in a way that moves us to some kind of resolution? How did this poem come to you? Uh, well, I think any poet will tell you that that poetry is a practice. Um, it's not uh, a thing you can... I mean, I think the word means make, to make. So we do make it in a sense, but in another sense, we don't. And I have a uh, a distrust of my own practice if it doesn't involve the unconscious in some way. So this came out of the unconscious. I mean, it's just, it started with an image. The image led to another image. Then there's some wordplay going on always because mm-hmm. I can't help it. That's how my brain works. Um, or doesn't, as the case may be. But yeah, it, it came from it came from an image mm. and some sounds in my head. So this was the first time that I've heard this uh, poem, but what is sticking with me are these ideas of what we burn and what we release. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as it relates to art or as it relates to something thematically that you were playing with? It's an unclear question, but that's that's kind of st- no, it's sticking fine. with me. It's, it's, well, and, and there's, a, there's a story behind that. Um, I guess there's a story behind everything. But um, I'm, I've been working for many, many years on a series of poems about um, my father's experiences in, in Vietnam, um, sort of the Anne Locke series. Um, and then that became engaged with another poet, Elizabeth Gray's beautiful, absolutely wonderful sequence on World War One, and we did some things together. And her poem, Salient, is coming out soon. I'm very excited about that. Um, but in the process of doing all this work on war, and especially with my family's own experience in that, it was also during the time that my father's health was failing. And uh, he died in April of last year. And I am still dealing with all of that. Um, The grieving is very intense. And then the process of dealing with the things, the Mm -hmm. possessions, and the things that you don't know what to do with. And we find as humans that we want to burn them. We don't want to throw them away. And I think, okay, yes, but I know that's a terribly wrong thing to do. Why am I building a big bonfire and throwing things on it? It's wrong. It's mm. it's bad behavior. It's releasing carbon into the air. Um, I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the the conflict about that is what is it about us that makes us want to burn things? 
Why do I have a fireplace in my house? I know better, but I do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is that connected to the self-destructiveness of the race or is it connected to a sense of hearth and home? Is it connected to something profound in the elements? You know, I don't know. Yes, all of these, all of these things, perhaps. <laughs> I, it's really interesting, this idea of, you know, what are we compelled to do on some really primal level? Maybe one of those things is to annihilate. You know what I mean? I see this with my, even with my three-year-old, who would much rather like knock over and destroy all of the block towers in the room rather than clean them up. Or talk mm. about what is frustrating him. And I know that that is the same way for me. When I reach a certain point of emotional overload, what I want to do is burn the place down. I mean, I don't make that choice, but I feel that very strongly. Because, yeah. you know, the easiest choice for me to make right now is to destroy everything and walk on. You know, like having to sift through and process and all of that. That's much harder, much more sophisticated work. It requires something different. From us, And I think when you're dealing with it on an individual level, it's really tough. But when you're dealing with it at a societal level, Whew. then it seems almost insurmountable and yet is what is required. It is uh, what uh, is know. required. It is what is required. So how do we find what will suffice? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that's, I think, the goal of the poet all the time and the artist is to, to figure out, okay, we have these impulses. We are these, this way. I mean, I talk about war. Some of the most profound experiences of many people's lives are the times that they spent in that crucible, mm -hmm. in that moment where it was everything was life or death. But there was tremendous destruction and grief and horror and also intense love, mm. intense love. So when you boil down the human experience, there's this impulse to destroy and there is this impulse to bond and love. Right. So how do we separate those things? How do we, or can, can we, what does it mean to look at them honestly and say, what are we doing? Is the impulse that leads the, the human species into war the same impulse that's leading us to destroy the planet? Yeah. Are they similar? Are they different? Is there a way to address any of them? Mm. Um, that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, and I love that you are working with these questions in the poems that you're writing as well and, present, and then presenting them to the people who are reading or listening. It's like, these are these are questions, you know? <laughs> I don't have Anybody answers. Anybody have any answers? Like, that's not your job. <laughs> Can we think about this together? Right. Can we find ways of... Well, I think poetry at its best creates a bridge towards something we don't know yet. So I don't know. Poetry is a practice. Poetry is a way of trying to get at something that I can't get to in any other way. When we spoke on the phone, you said that you write poetry and you act because you can't not. So speaking of <laughs> what we are compelled to do, what does that feel like, this sort of compulsion to do those two things? Uh, it, it, I feel I feel kind of two ways about that. Um on the one hand, I feel incredibly fortunate that I am passionate about my work, and when I'm lucky, I get to do it. But it is incredibly skitzy. Acting is a very different skill set. It is a very different world. But as a as a, as a pretty extreme introvert, I find that you know I build up 
this desire for connection. And I don't know how to do it. I'm not good at it. I can talk to people one-on-one, but I, I fall apart in groups. But in the theater, in the theater, yes. we form a family. And we have a specific task to do. And if we choose it well, that task can be right in the middle of what I want to do with my life. And then there are words. I love words. Mm-hmm. They, there is then the, the, the passion to get them right, to take the words of another writer and embody them. It's a privilege. And the incredible, I mean, to be perfectly frank, the, the joy of being in rehearsal. Actually, I love rehearsal more than performance. But either one, rehearsal, performance. If I am outside of myself and giving myself in service of this work that we've created together as a company and is the the brilliance of another writer, if I can allow that to go through me, I don't have time to think about anything else. So my very busy brain is only focused on one thing. And that is a profound joy. Mm. So many introverts in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) People do not understand. People do not understand. They think it's the opposite. But for all the reasons that you mentioned, it is introverts paradise. I mean... It's a wonderful gift. We know what to do. We know what to say. It's great. (laughs) Right. So you you alluded to this, but I want to follow it a little bit more. You have very diverse creative practice. So you do many, many things. Um, We know that you're a poet. You have an undergrad and graduate degree in poetry. You received the North Carolina Arts Council Fellowship Award as a poet. You've been widely published, but that's one of many things in which you participate. So let let me list some of those. You are a writer, an actor, a voiceover artist, an editor, a producer. You work in poetry, screenwriting, translations, and other works for the theater. And you are an editor for literary fiction, poetry, screenplays, and books on the law. These are all within the same world, but as you mentioned, they require very different skill sets and practices and um, you know different ways of kind of figuring out how to make all of this work within your life. There's so much chatter that we hear these days urging us to specialize yeah. as artists. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, it, there's two things. Um, and and I think we can start with with the f- frank admission that m- many of the divisions in my life are there because of money, mm. because it is not possible to make a living as a poet. It is not possible to make a living as an actor doing the kind of work I want to do. So I have to make a living. Um, I spent most of my adult life in New York, and I found rapidly that the best way to maximize my time and maximize the amount of money I could make with it was to type for lawyers. Mm. It was always available, and I could get the work. Go out. I would go out, produce a show, run up $17,000 of debt on my credit cards, and then work double shifts for lawyers to pay it off. It was an insane way to go about living my life, but I got really good at it. Mm. So I moved from typing to paralegal work to consulting work to editing. And I did it because I needed the money. So that, that part of things is just, that's what it is. 
the producing side of things happens because nobody wants to do that work. Right. Because um, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. And in, in small theaters, it, it, my skills, you know, I've, I've often said that I would never volunteer any service for which I'd not been paid professionally. But I was a cleaning woman. So I was paid professionally to clean people's bathrooms. So I clean bathrooms in the theater. Mm. And I talk to donors and I write the grant proposals and I envision the season. And, you know, it's I do all of those things. So, yeah, producing is because I'm, I guess I'm really opinionated about what kind of work I want to do. And Street Signs, which is our company, Street Signs Center for Literature and Performance, which I run with my partner in all things, Joseph Meagle, who's the artistic director. We have the luxury of, well, we have the luxury that's built on my shoulders sometimes. <laughs> Does that feel luxurious to you? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at this moment, no. Um, but we do. I mean, I am deeply grateful for this company and for the the way it works, which is to de- to to work with artists that whose work we love and to develop it and then produce it when it's ready. Not many theaters function that way. And there's a reason they don't because <laughs> you have to pick it up off the sand every time you build a production. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, you would say, what is the simplest thing for me to do? I should specialize. I should, you know, uh, do one of the many things that poets do to make a living, which is often work in academia I could do that. But the problem for me is that the acting thing has always been a compulsion as well. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it leads me in this this circle. And then I, I think I have Joseph Meagle to blame for the screenwriting piece mm-hmm. of it because he came out of the uh, what we call the mogul school in uh, in LA, the uh, Peter Stark motion picture producing program, and he has amazing skills that we don't get to use all the time. But he also told me that I would be a very good screenwriter. That was his opinion, and I said, "Why in the world do you think that?" Because I'm a terrible playwright. I've done translations and that sort of thing, but I, you know, no, not a good playwright. He said, "No, but screenwriting is different." Mm-hmm. And I think he, this is Joseph Meagle speaking, I think that poets understand form and they understand structure and they understand creating vivid images in very limited language. And that's what the screenplay requires. And I said, okay, teach me. Mm. And then when I found that form, I found he was absolutely right. It is like poetry and I adore it. Mm. So I have vast numbers of unproduced screenplays. (laughs) Which, you know, hasn't solved the problem. It just allows me another opportunity to be rejected on a different front on the same day. Okay, so let's talk about that. It seems like, so necessity is part of the driver, right, of diversification. But there's also passion for different ways, different modes of expression. That's another driver. And you just talked about one of the conditions of diversifying your creative practice is that, and I'm quoting you back at yourself, you said there is an opportunity to be rejected on any one of five or six fronts at any given moment of any given day, and this necessitates some survival strategies. Could you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Well, I'm here. Yes? I'm here. (laughs) So, yay. Um. Those survival strategies are are 
really, really important. And for me, there is an outlet, the thing that keeps me sane, that's outside of all of this. I studied dressage, and I I feel like that is also a lifelong practice, totally different from everything else that I do. For people who don't know what that is, could you tell us a little bit about what it means? Dressage is just the French word for training, but it's a, a form of riding. I suppose the most visible portion of it would be the, the Spanish riding school, all those lovely white stallions doing their airs above mm-hmm. the ground. Um, I don't do airs above the ground, but I study that practice because it is a form of communication between a human and a horse who speaks a completely different language and does not use words, but responds to the subtlest of cues. So there's two ways that it operates inside what I do. As an actor, it's amazing training because it says you must be aware of everything your body is doing to the cellular level because the horse can hear you. And if you want the horse to respond to a whisper, then you can't be sending the wrong cues or a lot of white noise or, you know. So it's a, it's a, it's a practice that involves tremendous um, concentration to control minute changes in your body. Useful for acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's about communication. It's about language. It's about what is la- how does language work? And this is a language that doesn't use words. So it gives me this whole other perspective on the the very wordy world that, that I live in. It's kind of like the, the mirror image of it in a, in a weird way. And in the time that I am spending time with horses, many anybody who does this will tell you it's tremendously addictive. And one of the reasons it's addictive is because horses are um, prey animals and they have this alertness to them. But they also have a desire to return to a state of calm. And if you spend a lot of time around them, they will allow you into that. Mm. And it is, uh, it's very, very addictive and healing. And in the time that you're on the horse, you really can't think about anything else. So the fact that I'm multitasking most of the time goes away. And that's a joy. Mm. Sounds like a very meditative space. It is, it is meditative and it requires energy and it requires energy of a very particular kind. Yeah. I mean, it functions for me like, like a Zen practice, I guess, or like a, a shrink's couch mm-hmm. <laughs> mixed with a, with a, some sort of religious practice. And it's also my gym. So I'm very lucky to have a, a way of, changing it up. Mm-hmm. And so is this something that, I mean, it's something that you seek out because you enjoy it, but is this also something that you seek out as an antidote to some of the rejection or the friction that you might feel in your creative world? Absolutely. Um, it, yes, because I don't compete. Many people in the horse world are highly competitive and they show and they do. I don't do any of that. And I know that, that because I ride maybe two or three times a week, and they say, if you want to ride one horse well, you have to ride seven a day. <laughs> so I'm never going to, I'm always going to be a beginner. And this is, it, it is a practice and it is another art form, but it is one at which I know that I am always going to be a beginner. So the opportunity, all I ask of this practice is that I progress 
and that I have a harmonious relationship with the horse. That's a lot to ask, mm. but it's not something that that I can feel rejected about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you have a different relationship. I have a different to that relationship experience. to the experience. It's yeah. a, it is it is not something that I I'm not I'm not seeking to set the world on fire and be the world's greatest dressage rider. That would be foolish and impossible <laughs> in my age and condition. How do you manage all of these projects? Not well. <laughs> but you clearly do because you're, you get a lot. I mean, you're very productive, right? Well, um, I do the best I can. Uh-huh. It's it's funny. We've had a lot of loss in the last year. Um, and another dear friend of the family passed away recently. And I keep thinking of him. And he would help with with projects. We live on 40 acres. So there's always a tremendous amount of work to do there as well. Big tangles of trees down after hurricanes, that sort of thing. And he would always just do it. Mm. And I said, how do, how, do you, how do you do this? How do you approach a problem like this, like five ancient oak trees down in a tangle? And he looked at me and he said, I just start. And I think that's kind of how I live my life. You know, I take one thread and I just start because, you know, there's always the prioritizing and the this and the that and the stuff that, that you have to do. But um, I, I would not say it's the healthiest way to live your life with no boundaries um, and always having something else that you could be doing and perhaps should be doing. And, you know, that kind of pulling at your consciousness and pulling at your um, energies is is not particularly healthy. Thank you to every horse I've ever met. <laughs> um, but it is something that you can do if you care enough about the outcome. And if you have a sort of stoic, just start approach, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't ask that my everyday be brilliant and full of joy. It isn't. Right. But I do take satisfaction in the accomplishment of a task, any task. That was the other great gift that was given to me by my father. He taught me to take pleasure in work and didn't matter what the work was. So if I clean the bathroom at the theater and when the actor comes in, he goes, oh, my God, this is great. Thank you. Or just I can live in this space. I perk up. Mm hmm. It's fine. I get a little jollies right there. And it doesn't matter what the job is. Yes, I. it's funny that you say this because I, for a while, was making a big deal out of the fact that I, I felt like I really needed to rest more, that I never have enough time to rest. And I realized that I actually don't want to rest. I want to work. Like, <laughs> that's what I want to do. That's what makes me feel good. It, it sort of feels like weirdly Jacobian or something like that. You know, work, 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 work uncle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but work. But I, I really like being productive. Yeah. And it could be, you know, folding the laundry. It could be cleaning the bathroom. It could be writing a play. It could be doing X, Y, Z. And it doesn't – so it's not necessarily about the scale Although I like to do big things, but sometimes it's just about doing the thing. It's about being productive and taking the next step. And, you know, when I do feel stuck or overwhelmed or something like that, you know, giving myself the pep talk of, like, just do the next thing. Yeah. Just do the next thing because inertia is very powerful. And once we're rolling, then we're rolling. And, you know, then things 
feels easier, but it's that first step or that next step that sometimes we have to help ourselves through. But, but you're right. There's a balance that needs to happen because rest is hugely important mm. and fallowness is very important to sort of being able to breathe one's way into the next phase of, of one's life or, mm. or creative output. I have a hard time with that too. Mm. I, I haven't figured that out at all. Not even a little bit. If anyone has figured that out, we would be open to oh hearing god. the solution. Oh my god, please, please, <laughs> please, please tell us how to stop. That's right, exactly. That's probably the the truth of it. We, you don't know how to stop, then. I want to talk about street signs, which you mentioned, and this podcast episode will be released after your current production has closed, unfortunately. But you are right now in the midst mm. of the performances of the talk, which is written and performed by Sunny Kelly for Street Signs Center for Literature and Performance. And it's a co-production, right, with Bulldog yes. Ensemble Theater? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I'm really interested in why you as Street Signs chose to develop this particular project as kind of a hallmark of your company values. Would you talk about that? Sure. Joseph Meagle encountered Sonny Kelly in class, where Sonny had written an eight-minute piece called Sterling's Story about a conversation Sonny had with his son Sterling. And Joseph immediately came home and said to me, this is going to be a play, and we're going to produce it. And I said, okay, but there are two questions we always ask as street signs, why and why now? Mm. And this piece answers both of those questions. I mean, it is a crucial part of the conversation that we need to have as a country when we are so divided. In terms of our understanding of how race works in this country, we, we are divided. We see it very, very differently. And the the position of privilege that that we hold as white people is something that can be blinding and there are lots and lots of people who don't want to have this conversation there are lots of people who say if we just stop talking about it it'll go away and joseph has a very interesting perspective on this he his mother um was born in vienna and left vienna shortly before World War II, to go to Colombia. And her family went to Colombia, her immediate family. The rest of her family was killed in the Holocaust. My. And one of the things that that is very different about the way that Germany and Austria dealt with the Holocaust and the way that our country has dealt with the heritage of slavery is that, and, and God knows this is a long conversation that I really am not qualified to enter into, but in this one way, Germany and Austria did something very specific. They acknowledged the shame, and they made reparations. Mm. We still talk about the heritage of the Confederacy with pride. We still talk about it as though there were something... I mean, we have not yet acknowledged as a country the harm that was done to an entire set of enslaved people. And we have not acknowledged 
the consequences, the lasting consequences of the theft of that labor. Personally, I think we won't until we we deal with it in the way that that Germany and Austria dealt with the Holocaust. Joseph's beautiful mother, who was, may she rest in peace, one of the kindest, most loving people I have ever known, who never met a stranger, who always reached out to the immigrant, to the to the person new in the community, who always wanted to say, you are welcome, you are here, came from such a position of love. But when that check arrived, a very small check of her reparations, mm. she would seize it with incredible fierceness and run straight to the bank because she never wanted one second's possibility that that would not reach her bank account. Not because she needed the money or wanted the money or was obsessed with money. It was about the gesture. Mm. It was about saying, yes, you took so much. You took so much. And we haven't done that. So what Sonny is doing in the talk is letting people well, for, for black families, it's an opportunity to sort of recognize and celebrate, and, and, and there's a tremendous amount of recognition humor in this piece. And for white people, surprisingly many of whom do not know the stories, they don't remember Emmett Till. Mm. They don't know Tamir Rice. They don't remember Freddie Gray. None of these names are embedded in their souls in the way that that, that those names resonate with families of color. So amazingly, there are these experiences that, that white people are having in the theater that are, that are new to them. And Sonny has such an astonishing capacity to welcome that and to say, great, let's talk. And he doesn't judge. He doesn't um, criticize. He is so open and loving in his approach, and also just dead honest, saying, fam, we got to talk. Mm. We, if we're going to heal, if we're going to come together as a country, we've got to reckon with this heritage. We've got to reckon with how different it is to be the father of a young black boy and to be the father of a young white boy in terms of what you tell them about how to survive in this world. And the horror of that for the black parent to say, I'm going to destroy the innocence of my child. Who wants to do that? Right. And how can we allow that to continue to be the case? And for all the white people saying, you know, if we stop talking about it, it would go away. Well, it hasn't gone away yet. So my question to them is, what's your evidence? Mm -hmm. and, and what would be the harm in acknowledging the difference? So how long has this piece been in development? Oh, I think the conversation happened, oh, Lordy, Sonny would know, 2015, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, his son was seven. His son is now 11. So somebody, quick, mm. do the arithmetic. Right, right. Um, he wrote this story down in a frenzy, brought it to class. Joseph said, it's got to be a play. Sonny started interviewing his family members who appear in the play. He he embodies everybody from his own son to his own grandmother to James Baldwin and Barack Obama. Mm. It's um 
It's an amazing tour de force performance. I think he plays about 20 characters. But the process was was that, you know, sort of opening it up, bringing in his reading, bringing in literature, bringing in family stories, and then the process of weaving that together. He's done um, a number of workshop productions of it, and this is the first full run that he's had in the, in the, in the fruit with Bulldog and uh, Street Science, and then again at Historic Playmakers Theater uh, in Chapel Hill. So you mentioned this a little bit, but I'd like to scratch into it a little bit more. So you as Street Science have developed this piece over the last several years with Sonny Kelly, and that is a choice that you're making as a theater company. You could produce these sort of well-worn quote, I'm quoting classics that people would recognize in our community that have some sort of name recognition and everybody already knows the story and you're choosing to go a different route. Why is that important to you? Why do you make that choice? I think because we believe in writers and we want to support those voices. In the last year, we produced The Pattern at Pendarvis by Dean Gray in New York at the Here Arts Center last summer. And that was a new play by Dean Gray about closeted gay men in the Midwest in, uh, and the ways in which their contributions to culture were unacknowledged or, or failed to acknowledge a certain part of, of the essence of, of, of who they were as people. That was in, in, in New York. And then we came back with another piece that we've been developing for some time, Kane Smigo's Temples of Long and Air, which we produced and was presented by Playmakers Repertory Company as part of their PRC2 series. That was a, a, a another piece that we've been developing for some time and we're thrilled to be able to bring to the world in that way. That was um, Kane Smigo's hip-hop odyssey of of exploration of what it means to be a white kid in hip hop culture raised partially for his childhood by his white mother and her black boyfriend. And also the tension between that and, and his very conservative West Virginia family. So that was another piece that had been in development for some time and, and worked with language, with poetry, with performance poetry, with hip hop. And then, then Sonny Kelly's piece. So, they there's a pattern here mm. you know we're we're looking for for voices that are dealing with issues of profound contemporary importance we want the voices who are speaking now about the issues that matter most now does that mean i wouldn't want to do um go back to my roots and do some shakespeare i mean the first company i founded was the atlanta shakespeare right. company so um but i would have to know why and why now um, and I'm sure there could be an answer to that question, and it might happen. Yeah. Street Signs does sometimes do that. But it has to answer the why and the why now question. And and right now there's so been so much urgency and so many voices of artists whom we love and admire who have, you know, been working with us on these projects that it just there just hasn't been time. We're not looking around for work to do. Right. Do you see yourself as a political company? I don't know exactly what that means, but maybe engaged would be, mm. a, you know, we're engagé. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, frankly, sure. I, I am deeply involved in politics as a human. I, I 
um, I sweat it every day, what we're doing and um, how what we are not addressing in our politics and in, in our civil discourse. Most most urgently for me, the issues of what we're doing and not doing to make this planet habitable for humans going forward um, and all the things that suffer, the people and, and things that suffer along the way um, and war what the hell we're doing. Right. Um, and, and I think issues of, um, of income inequality and, and the way that those get tangled up with questions of race in this country is something that, that I feel um, requires our daily attention. Mm. I am more and more a fan of a kind of permeability between inside, outside in the theater. I feel like for a while and, Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like for a while there was a real trend where, you know, what's going on outside of the theater shall not enter. You know, these are these right. are distinct spaces. So you leave everything outside the doors and then you come in and you're entertained almost in the same way that like a movie, like a blockbuster might entertain us. Mm-hmm. And we do that for a while and then we leave. And I am much more a fan of this, as I mentioned, this permeability where it's like we are people who are moving in the world and living and things are happening to us. And why aren't we uh, turning these questions over in our artistic spaces? Because where else, like, that's the best place to do it. I mean, it's just, I, so. and I love this word permeability mm. because because we need to, our, our structures, our, our theaters need to be permeable, but our hearts do too. And I think that, that you know, I can write an op-ed piece or an essay or a gerrymand or a diatribe and change absolutely no one's mind ever. Right. We're entrenched. But what art can do that that other forms cannot is change things from the inside to permeate, mm-hmm. to allow something to enter and later percolate because no one's attacking you, at least not in the theater that 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 I want to make. I'm I'm not interested in making theater that has all the answers. I'm not interested in making theater that that is going to hit you over the head. I'm interested in theater that will cause you to have an experience that might empower you or might make you question something. And even if it doesn't hit you for weeks or months or years, you know, there's there's a kind of um, there's a kind of half-life to the language one hopes of poetry and of the theater as well that can cause something to change in in, in nuanced ways perhaps in in small minuscule ways perhaps but also can lead to a kind of cracking open of the heart mm-hmm. that that can can result in real change i mean i have to believe in that i'm sure you've experienced that mm-hmm. as an audience member and i, I know have. that i have as well I have. And those moments when I read a poem and it takes the top of my head off Mm -hmm. or I'm sitting in the theater and suddenly there's a, (gasps) Mm -hmm. you know, where I feel like I've I've seen something in a different way or it has entered me in some way. Those are the moments that that I think we live for in art. Yeah, it's so true. I remember shows I haven't seen in 25 years that I still think about regularly. And it's not I mean, 
everybody is allergic to this lecture theater where you go Ugh, in and no. you're kind of talked at and like <laughs> shamed. We will not be doing yeah. that. Shamed for, you know, 90 minutes and then you leave. It's like, I never want to do that again. But but there is something to be said for opening questions that allow this kind of absorption of an experience. It's empathy training, right? Right. Yeah. But, but I think that, that, that we get at that best through story. I'm a big believer in narrative. I'm so deeply unfashionable. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I believe in it. I believe that, that that's how empathy gets sparked. That's, and, and not just empathy. I mean, we've, we've, we have the opportunity to change our perceptions based on our engagement. And, and in poetry, it happens at, an, at, an, at a different level it, because, you, because the language that you're working with is one hopes alive mm. and 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 unpredictable and and not controllable so what you put out into the world you know you don't know where it's going to land mm. so knowing the answer or having the answer or or accusatory anything is is not going to that's not what we do mm. i want to bring up something that i read in an interview with Sonny Kelly that I can't get out of my mind. And I'm really curious about what you have to say. He was interviewed for an article in the Duke Chronicle and identified this phrase, discursive heirloom. And let me read the quote from, from this article. It says, I call it a discursive heirloom, Kelly said, a habitual hand-me-down from generation to generation, what my father had told me and his parents told him, what people have told us as black people, especially as black males. So I unloaded on this seven-year-old, all the time anxious and afraid that I was killing his innocence, that I would maybe make him angry or afraid. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the quote. So in this case, the discursive heirloom that he's talking about is a way of talking about race. It's the language and the conversation that's shared with and handed down uh, to black males within a family or perhaps within the larger culture. And so I've been thinking of this idea, uh, this this language that we hand down generationally about our identities and how about how we uh-huh. are supposed to walk in the world or need to. And I want to kind of yank the steering wheel a little bit over into the lane of being an artist. Hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about discursive heirlooms when it comes to the life of an artist. Wow. Um, I can, there's like three different directions here. My brain's going, <laughs> um, what, what Sonny's talking about is, is ways that families want to keep their sons alive mm. sons and and to to some degree daughters as well um and if if there were a different kind of discursive heirloom that we could create um we receive the ones that tell us who we are who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to care about and and that put us into sort of fiercely tribal sects if an artist could come up with some kind of discursive heirloom that that would have like uh, the ability to break that down that would have the ability to penetrate that and break that down that would be pretty amazing i don't know what that would be but i think it also it has to do with the same kinds of things that we've been talking about i, I suppose 
poems or plays that live on in the consciousness that continue to have um, a kind of working mm. uh, place inside the mind and, and bodies of the people who receive them. Maybe those are forms of discursive heirlooms as well. I mean, there are poems that were that were read to me as a child that are in my mind all the time mm. that that stay there. But maybe the ones maybe there's a possibility of creating something that we make that can become such a thing. Maybe that's part of why we we do the work, hoping that 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 you know something will resonate with someone that will that will have the capacity to to break down some of those rigidities mm. of tribal structures. It's like the it's it's a little bit about the decision to create a legacy that is fresh and productive and well I think that 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 you know as I'm getting old this <laughs> frightening thought um I think about legacy sure I mean I think about what that have I done with my life you know what what's to show for it you know it Another one of the family sayings that 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 sort of informed the way we lived in the world was you leave a place better than you found it. And that was everything from, you know, a campsite on your way across country to a bathroom on the side of the road to army quarters when we were clearing them. Um, you leave a place better than you found it. So my mother is getting quite elderly now, and she has gone through this period of saying, it's time for me to go, and the world's not better. Mm. So it, you know, as you watch, as you feel yourself getting older, and you watch the people that you love in the generations ahead of you getting older and dying, you think a lot about what what you want to leave behind. I mean, we all understand that we're just stardust, and you know, it's it's ephemeral, and life is here, and then it's gone. But if there's one thing that unites us as as human beings uh, is is a sense that that we crave a sense of meaning. We want to feel that somehow we leave something behind that is of value. People, that's why one of the reasons people are so connected to their children. Mm. It's the the biggest gift that they leave behind. Who are these people? Who are they going to become? And what are the discursive heirlooms that we give them to go on into the next generation? And what are the things that we create in our in and of ourselves, especially as artists? What what do we do? What do we what do we leave behind that justifies our existence in this planet? I mean, there are lots of other things I could have done with my life. Right. You know, I could have been a social justice warrior. I could have joined the Peace Corps. I could have, you know, become a lawyer and 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 defended people who couldn't afford legal services. I mean, there are lots of things I could have done with my life that that would be demonstrably useful. So I think that's one of the struggles that that many artists face is that how do we justify the 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 way that we spend our lives? Are we what how are we moving things forward? How are we making the world better? I don't know the answer to that. I just know that it's uh, it's a struggle. So how do you approach this question? And it doesn't have to be in relationship to your your mother, but this question of, I'm getting ready to go, but the world is not a better place. How do you make peace with that when it if it arrives in your mind, as it does in mine, in the middle of the night? <laughs> um, and I do try to justify 
the work that I do and how I move in the world. How do you, how do you approach that? I think the only thing that gives me peace is to make the work. I'm really tired right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm very, very tired and very low, you know, from the, from the experience of, of death and grieving and, and then, as as we were talking before the podcast began, a car accident that right. was devastating about my view of human nature. So the only real piece is to to look at the work. And I look at Sonny Kelly, and I see him in the in the August Wilson phrase, shining like new money on that stage, and reaching out with his whole heart and soul to the people who stay afterwards for the conversation. And I think, well. That doesn't suck. Mm-hmm. He's offering people an opportunity to see things in a different way. He's op- offering people an opportunity to have an experience, to walk out of the theater, to change the way they look at other people. And he's leaving them with stories and laughter and tears and experiences that will have the capacity to turn later. They're not simple. The stories are not simple. The Jokes are not simple. The literature that he brings in is not simple. But when I watch that working on the audience, when I watch the audience walk out of the theater energized and excited and feeling like they've been given something, the gift that Sonny Kelly gives night after night in these performances, I think, well, okay. Mm-hmm. And that's all we have is that sort of present, that present moment, right? Because that's in it. this moment... The world is better. Like the world that I see right now <laughs> is better, you know? And I think, I mean, Maybe. that's that's real. Like who, yeah. I often think like, who do I think I am that I know? Right. The we answer, don't. You know? Oh and God, so I'm no. just going to, I'm just going to try, do my thing, hope for the best. And just, you know, that's all I can do because I can't know what is better and what is worse and how I've changed this person or that person or what I could have done. You know, I can't, there are so many things that I can't control about the sort of quantitative goodness of the world. And so all I have is the moment in front of me and the three feet, you know, around (laughs) myself. And I'm going to try and and focus on the betterment of that um, and hope for the best. So, and just start and just start. (laughs) One step, one step. I would love it if you would close our conversation with another poem. How about if we do the last poem in the Anlock book? The body ages. Take this down. First, the sighing through the summer branches, then the sound of the train incongruous in the leafy city as if the rumbling tracks had waked the sirens. The profile, Grecian, graven, will not stay. Loud chorus from the cardinal and the unseen jay common to us. They will not untie the will, but you can. Like the last bee of summer, unhurried at the Bodleia, the stirring even now. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. For sharing your work and the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, friends. I want to tell you about Shadowbox Studio, where this episode was recorded. Shadowbox Studio is Durham's flexible, rentable art and activity space. 
Shadowbox is perfect for video and photo shoots, recording podcasts like this one, and holding movie screenings, classes, spy club meetings, or whatever else you can dream up. Find out more at shadowboxstudio.org. And here's a secret. If you tell them you heard it on Artist Soapbox, you'll get a $25 discount on your first rental. Isn't that awesome?